Hey, y'all. Hey, welcome to the Purpose University podcast, your source of inspiration as you seek to overcome adversity, create your best life and beat your most authentic self. I am Dr. Eve. I'm your host, and I'm excited that you decided to join me on today because your time is valuable and I recognize you could be anywhere else, but you're here. So thank you. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm really happy to have you here. And I certainly hope that you come back for more. So, uh, real talk. If you're feeling what you're hearing, help the show grow. Leave a review and tell everyone you know. Now, without further ado, let's get into it. So I'm delighted to be here on today with Takia Blackman, who is a mental health advocate, speaker, and writer. What I know about Takia is one of her favorite quotes is, I'd rather be living my truth happily than living a lie miserably. She is a fellow podcaster, so shout out to Fireflies Unite Podcast. Excited to have you here talking about mental health and being first-generation Takia. Hey, girl. Hey. Hey. Thank you for having me. You are so very welcome. I have been following you for a while now. Excited that last year, not last year, it was last month. I'm tripping. Last month, you, along with Dr. Janae Taylor, did the whole Black Mental Health Awareness. I thought that was pretty badass, the two of you. And so to have you here today, it's like, okay, okay, okay. I'm excited. So I love that you are first generation. You are an alum of both Georgetown University and Howard um, as people say, the real HU. <laughs> and so that's right. You you have background, in my understanding, right, in communications, both in undergrad and grad school. Yes. So undergrad was more production based, so radio, television, and film. And graduate from Georgetown, I studied more of corporate communications and public relations. Nice. But then you were like, Nah, I'm about to do this mental health thing. So this is a great time to say, Can you tell us your story? <laughs> Who are you? And what is it that you do? How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, so who am I? I am his first. I am the oldest of seven children. I am originally from New Jersey. And I always knew that I wanted something greater for myself because I watched my mom be verbally and physically abused growing up. So that really took a toll on me. And my dad was also, but my mom was not abused by my dad, let me say that. It was by my sibling's dad, rather. But my father was also pretty much in and out of my life. He was absent for most of it, but he would kind of have moments where he would pop up and be there and then leave because he he used drugs. So he had a substance disorder. So that allowed him to be very inconsistent in my life. And I remember spending a lot of my childhood, like, on edge. On edge, like, I just... I didn't even know that, honestly, I know we'll get into this, but I didn't even know that it was not okay to be, like, not on edge 24-7. Like, I thought that was actually Mm -hmm. um, normal or, like, natural until when I had my suicide attempt. I'm trying not to jump ahead of the game too fast, but I didn't know until I I took medication from being in the hospital. And a couple hours later, I was like, yo, this how it feels to be, like, mellowed out. Like, I just... I just didn't know that that wasn't normal for me. And so I just always been that very ambitious little girl. I did everything from drill team pageants, played the clarinet, fashion shows, like praise dance. Like I literally did everything, Girl Scouts dance, just because for me, that was my way of like coping with some of the things that I was exposed to in my childhood. So I grew up, some people would call it the ghetto. I lived in low-income community housing. Mm-hmm. And so watching, I remember seeing having crackheads on the corner, people selling drugs, 
my father then just also used but he started selling them so it was just it was a lot and that's not to say my childhood was terrible I don't want to paint this picture but those were some of the challenges that I certainly faced and that I had to overcome with my mom always enforced education saying that you know in order for you to have a better life for yourself like you know you have to have some type of trade or some type of education and so I decided that okay well I'm going to I'm going to go to college and this is what I want to do and once I went to high school my well my mom moved into more of a suburban area and moved us out to her ghetto some people would call it and we moved out and left there and I went to change schools and from there I started to realize that okay in this area people have mothers and fathers they're not on government assistance they actually own homes they're not renting and like did you know the generational trauma well not just generational trauma but generational like poverty you know one person they become a teenage mom like my mom had me at 18 and then say like then I would have a kid and then I would live in that same community uh, low income community development like it would just be a generational thing and my mom really was adamant about not making that a thing for me and so that's when I just decided you know I wanted something better for myself and in high school I started seeking and looking at college as an option that I could live a life that didn't require a whole bunch of struggle that's real dope so I'm curious to know when you were looking for schools, since we're going to go there, since you actually went to Shaw first, <laughs> I had to do it. I had to do it. Look, you told on yourself. But no, but it happens all the time. Like, I mean, there are a lot of people that come from, you know, New Jersey, New York, D.C., Maryland, like Virginia. They come to Shaw and, you know, they'll be there for a while, but it's like, okay, I'm, I'm here and I'm leaving. But what, what was it with you that made you come to Shaw and then actually transition to go back home? I love to know that part. Well, I actually never went back home because I'm from New Jersey, but I I actually always wanted to go to Howard since I was in high school, and I didn't get in when I first applied to Howard, and being the person that I am, I'm the same person, like I said, I did pageants. I would do pageants two and three times before I actually won, so my commitment is like no other, and so my dedication is like mm. no other. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go to Shaw. They accepted me. And I basically went there with the exit strategy of going there, making sure my grades were good, and then applying as a transfer student. But that time there was, was great for me in the sense that I met some amazing people. I had fun, so I wasn't, like, miserable my first you know, mm-hmm. the year that I spent at Shaw. I was involved on campus, and, you know, it was great for me. I just always knew that in my heart that that's where I belonged. I just knew that I belonged at Howard. I just always felt like I fit in um, there as far as the culture goes. And so once I went and I uh, transferred over to Howard, and I was right. Like, I literally just blossomed. I discovered entrepreneurship. And then also geographically, Washington, D.C. was just better for me as far as, like, opportunity-wise. So when I went to Howard, I was able to intern at TV1 because their headquarters is in the DMV area. At the time, BET also had their headquarters in D.C., but now they no longer have their D.C. office, but they did. And so I was able to work on shows like Black Girls Rock and the Soul Train Awards, and I had all of that experience right at my fingertips because my major, you know, was communications, and my background was I wanted to work behind the scenes. I wanted to be a producer. I wanted to be the one you know, calling the shots and, and being creative and bringing ideas from a vision to execution. And so that's always been my thing. I've never been the person to say like, oh, I want to do something. I want to do something. And well, the one thing I had been struggling with saying I want to write a book and actually getting that done. But what I did now is started putting myself on the schedule. 
And so, but when it comes to pretty much any other ideas, like when I was at Howard, I started a mind ministry because these shout out to Shaw, Howard didn't have a mind ministry. So my friends and I, my friend who actually went to Shaw with me, she also transferred to Howard. And she and I uh, birthed Adonai Mind Ministers of Praise, and we started the mind ministry um, at Howard University that still exists to this day on campus. Oh, wow. That's when I, yes, and that's when I realized, okay, I do have this gift of actually bursting things and bringing things to life. You know, I even had a mentoring program called Lady Me, which was geared towards high school students and connecting them with college students and service their mentors. And that was a program that I actually started and I funded and I did that as well when I was at Howard. So it really showed me, honestly, during that time is that I literally, I know some cliches have the power to do like anything, but I know that's not everyone's, uh, I guess, gift. And I realized what my gift is actually bringing things to life. And mm. so I don't know where it actually came from, but I know I really started to nurture that at Howard. I was naturally a leader, I guess because I'm the oldest of seven children. But even when I was in drill team, I was the captain of the team. So I was always a natural born leader. So I guess entrepreneurship and leadership, for me, they kind of went hand in hand. And I just knew that I loved entertainment. I remember being in high school in terms of communications. I was involved in the broadcast program at my high school. And then even in high school, I used to, since I lived in New Jersey, a really big thing for me was 106 and Park with Free and AJ and all of that. I used to cut school. I'm telling all my business, I used to cut school and go get on the train, go over to the city. My guys and and I, we would go be on 106 and Park. We had connections there. We were always going to concerts. So the whole communication piece was always there for me as far as like putting mm. events together and writing. All of that was always there and it was really nurtured. And so I think once I got to college, I figured out, okay, this communication thing is really great for me and I love this. But after I graduated from Georgetown with my master's, two months later, I wanted to be diagnosed with major depressive and generalized anxiety disorders. And it just so happened around this time when I was graduated from getting my master's, I also was launching a small boutique PR agency. And I was like, this could not, I could not have been diagnosed at a worse time. Like, this is mm-hmm. terrible. Like, and I knew that something was wrong in the sense that I started struggling with suicidal thoughts ever since I was about 12 or 13. So the, mm. the thoughts were there. It's just that I suppressed them. And then it got to the point where I could no longer suppress it. And it was just there. And I was always thinking about it. And about eight months passed, I couldn't stop thinking about it after my diagnosis. Like, I just kept thinking about it for eight months straight. And it eventually led to me attempting and telling a friend. I didn't tell the friend that I attempted, but I did tell her that I wish I was no longer here via text message. And I didn't know until after I got out of the hospital a week later that she was the friend who called. The police showed up at my house and they basically evaluated me so that I didn't look well. I did not tell the police that I... You know, that I, at that time that I took a whole bunch of pills and drank some wine and I was hoping that my goal was that I would go to sleep and just not wake up. And mm. so I didn't tell them that, but they told me that I didn't look well. They said, you do not look well and we're going to make the decision that you have to go into the hospital. And so they said, we can call 911 and have the paramedics come and pick you up or we're going to handcuff you and take you because you, they actually, when was the last time you ate or had anything to drink? I couldn't remember. I, I don't know. Maybe it was about three or four days. So when I got to the hospital, I was evaluated and I told them that I did, in fact, try to end my life. And I also, they told me that I was also dehydrated because I haven't had anything to eat or drink in like three or four days. And I remember the psychiatrist asking me what day it was and I couldn't tell him. I, I, I didn't know. Like I was there 
physically, mm-hmm. my body was there, but like mentally, I was really not here. And I didn't realize that depression could be that debilitating to the point where like, of course, you hear like people say like, oh, I was crying or I couldn't get out of bed. I just felt like sadness, but I, I didn't realize how clinical it was. Like I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I was very isolated. I was thinking about death all the time, which of course, mm. you know, led to that, to the attempt. And I was gone. Like, I just, I felt like I was having an outer body experience. Like, I, things were slowed down. I could barely move. And I remember just getting up to the, once they brought me upstairs to the unit, I remember just breaking down and crying. I was in a wheelchair. They were pushing me into the unit. And I remember just crying. And the nurse saying, you know, you're going to be fine. You know, you told them mm-hmm. that you want to admit yourself because the psychiatrist told me that you can admit yourself and it'll be voluntary. But if we do involuntarily, it's not going to give you much control over the process. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go. He said, because we can't let you leave because all my family's in New Jersey and I'm down in Maryland. And I wasn't necessarily by myself, but I really wasn't telling mm-hmm. people what was going on. So mm. that's when I started to open about this whole mental health thing because I remember telling the, one of the directors of the social workers, I said, I don't belong here. And she said, what do you mean? I said, I don't belong here. She said, why is that? I said, I have a bachelor's degree from Howard University. I have a master's degree from Georgetown University. Mm-hmm. And people like me, meaning people that are highly educated, we don't come here. We, we don't come to these types. We don't, this is not for me. I just hmm. thought it was for people who heard voices and talked to themselves. And hmm. she said, ma'am, she said, well, people with degrees, they get sick too. And sometimes, you know, they have breakdowns. And it's, it's think of it as a time to restart. I just felt like I, I couldn't come to grips with me being in the psychiatric unit because that meant that I was crazy. And that's when this hmm. whole mental health journey started. And I started to figure out how can I use it. Was I didn't exactly figure this out in the hospital, but... As the journey started to progress, how can I use my communication skills? You know, the things where I worked on Black Girls Rock or the Soul Train Awards and my experience at TV One and all those things that I've done. How can I use that to raise awareness about mental health for communities of color? And I figured, oh, this is a great way to merge it. You know, I'm using the exact same skills that I was using in entertainment. This time I'm just raising awareness for a cause that's so very personal and dear to me. And so that's really how the mental health journey started. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I want to kind of go back to, you know, the part of you leaving Shaw to go to Howard, because what I like is that you had to find the environment that worked for you and the one that would allow you to thrive. That's really important, especially as a first gen where sometimes we believe that we can only go where we're supposed to go based on what people tell us to do or because it seems like limited options when things don't work out the first time. But the fact that you kept trying, like, I commend you for that. So, like, shout out to you for staying true to that journey and commitment to wanting to be in a DMV, especially at, like, you know, Howard. Like, awesome. There's also a second point that I, I want to make. I love how, though you finished graduate school, you still stepped into this, like you said, this PR boutique, which I hadn't heard anything like that before. So I think that's really cool. But in spite of the fact that you had the degrees from these awesome institutions and you were building your own business how you highlight to us that sometimes it's when you start getting to your prime that things happen to maybe make you switch lanes a little bit. Because that's for you when mental health came up. So it was after you finished school. Yes. Yeah. You know what? Like I said, it was always there. It's just that the more we suppress what I've learned and been studying, mm. it's life events will trigger and make things resurface. So it's only but so mm. long 
that I would have been able to suppress it. You know, like I said, the suicidal thoughts were always there. My family were like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't tell you I was 14 that I put a whole bunch of pills in my mouth and then I spit them out because I heard someone coming or like I always had these urges mm. or these desires of not wanting to be alive. It would come in moments. It wasn't like I spent my entire childhood depressed. It's just like it would come in waves and it was like I couldn't mm. control it. But realizing that it was brought on by just the environment, you know, mm-hmm. um, any person watching their mom be abused and it not being addressed and feeling mm-hmm. like that my mom was choosing my sibling's dad over my brother or my siblings and I and just that whole thing. And I think, honestly, that was the biggest thing that made me want to run away and go to college because it wasn't just about being successful. It was a matter of I was running away from that environment. Mm-hmm. Like it, was so, it was so toxic that I just could not wait to leave. Like, I was so happy to graduate and get out of the house because it just was very toxic and, and not healthy for me. And... I don't believe, at least academically or socially, rather, I don't think it necessarily started my growth, but it was impacting me in the sense that for me, a lot of people would grow up in an environment like that and they could turn to, let's say, drugs or alcohol because that particular parent or they get into Mm -hmm. an abusive relationship and they become a teenage mom like my mother did. You know, they could follow those things, but for me, it it was a driving force. I said, this is what I do not want. So what is it that I have to do to provide some type of stability and a a better life for myself? And, you know, college was the answer. Mm, That's real dope. So can you share with us what you believe has been the most challenging aspect of you navigating life as a first gen? Yeah, honestly, I believe the most challenging thing is student loans. And I say that because I remember them telling me, like, well, if I go to school in New Jersey, most of my education will be covered through grants and, like, tell grants and not, I wouldn't even have to take out really any loans because, or if I did, it would be a very small loan because I was a New Jersey resident. You know, college is so much cheaper. But I was so adamant about getting away from New Jersey because I associated, I didn't realize it so now a lot of times with trauma. And so I was like, nope, I don't care. I got to take out as many loans as possible. Yes, I got, I did get scholarships. So thank God for that. But it still wasn't enough to cover me going to two private institutions. So I, so I said that, well, I guess I'm going to have to take out all these loans because this is what I want to do now. Do I regret it? Absolutely not. But I just wish that there was someone there before me, someone who could have not necessarily held my hand, but just showed me like, okay, so if you take out these loans, it could potentially take you this amount of time to pay them off. Or maybe even instead of going to Shaw, maybe how about you just go to a community college for two years, then maybe transfer to Howard because you could have saved a little bit more money or kind of someone coaching me through what that process would have been like and how challenging it could be and even adding stress to a person who's trying to, you go to college, you know, because you want to have a better life. But then it's like, okay, well, now I'm getting out of college and I'm still paying for college because I got to pay these loans back. And I just felt like, I didn't really have anyone there trying to help me navigate that financial aspect of it. So I felt like a lot of it I had to figure out on my own. That, I would say, was the most challenging thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just necessarily even being in college, but I would say even like just after college because I didn't go straight into grad school. I did take mm-hmm. time off. Yeah. So, um, so I just was wish that I had somebody to say like okay well maybe you should try to find who that's going to give you some more money or like it was just things that I wish I would have known but I do I have any regrets absolutely not you know because they even though they were two private institutions so that means they cost a lot 
but the connections that I gained and the experiences that I had, I don't think you can really put a number on that. And one of the things that I had to tell myself that there are some people who may, you know, they're like, oh, okay, well, I got they have to pay off the rest of the loan for the rest of their lives. But I, you know, I believe in God. My faith is very strong. And so if I believe that God provided me with whether it was loans and scholarships, all of them combined together with those resources to get my education, the loans that I did have to take out, he will provide a way for them to be, you know, to be paid off. And so that was something that I had to come to terms with. They're like, it's not the end of the world. You know, it doesn't mean you're going to have this carrot dangling over your head. Because I never liked that feeling of feeling like, something is always hanging over my head like especially when it comes to not just student loans but just money debt anything like that because I was mm-hmm. so adamant about not if I came from poverty I don't want to feel like I left school and now I'm like still living below the poverty line if that makes sense and I was just it, it was just things that I couldn't get with and so I was like there are certain things now that being the oldest of seven children I have a brother who's 18 he just turned 18 and he'll be graduating and I had to tell him like this is the, what the reality is you know so mm. if you can take out loans or you can go to a local uh, uh, you know a school in the state and go to school for cheaper you know with mommy having being basically a single parent with these children you you know all, having multiple children you'll be able to get a lot of funding but I just you know I'm kind of being to him what I needed and that was one mm. of the aspects that I really wish I had someone to kind of coach me through and uh, walk me through because it's a lot that I had to figure out on my own. Mm. That's really powerful. I want to go back and say something that I'm like, oh, God, I should have said that right away. My mind has been definitely processing our conversation. Thank you for your transparency and your vulnerability and talking about your experience with suicide. It's one of those things like, man, how do you say something to that? Like, wow, you really you really overcame that and in a way that you were almost out of here so you wouldn't have been able to tell your story had things had you know gone different so thank you for that because I'm sure there's somebody who is hearing this who is like oh man that was me or that could have been me too why didn't you say something sooner why didn't you reach out to get help you know before it had even gotten to a point of this is just what I'm gonna do Partly because I grew up in the church, so I thought if I say out loud that I have, if they tell me I have this diagnosis of major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, for me, that meant that if I say this out loud, I'm claiming onto something and I thought life and death was in the power of the tongue. So it was very conflicting for me, like what my faith and spirituality was versus what was actually happening in my mind. And so I was like, no, I'm going to keep giving this to myself. And I would call Percy at the church and someone said, talk and tell me mm. for 20 minutes a day. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I ain't trying to laugh, but yeah, you're right. You know, I just don't know how to do that. That's not my gift. So mm-hmm. I can't talk in tongues. So does that mean that I'm going to have this for the rest of my life? And learning, I think, also that shame, you know, that, that overcoming, like, what's wrong with you? You have nothing to be depressed about. Like, you have two degrees from two of the best schools in the country and you're mm-hmm. depressed you working behind the scenes on Black Girls Rock and meeting all these celebrities and getting all these connections and being in the room with all these power players and you're talking about you're depressed like but I also had other things going on you know I just also was like I said trying I never actually worked through that childhood trauma 
I hmm. and then also in addition to not working through the trauma I would talk about it like people knew a lot of times people knew what my background was as far as my relationship with my dad and him being on drugs watching my mom be abused people people knew that I talked about it but what I realized that just because I was talking about it didn't necessarily mean that I was coping because I was not in therapy getting the right tools so therefore mm-hmm. I was talking I was talking to people about it peers and things but people, why don't you just do this? Or why don't you just do that? Opposed to with a therapist actually guiding you and helping you figure out, oh, this is what you're, this is a trigger for you. So what tools do you need to put in your box to make sure that you have healthy coping strategies? So for me, a strategy, a coping strategy for me was I would work a lot. I was working a lot, but I was still fresh out of school. So I wasn't making a lot of money and I was still having a hard time making ends meet. So that added to it on top of the childhood trauma and then being diagnosed and feeling ashamed and embarrassed. And I also didn't have the knowledge. I just thought when someone said depression, I didn't know one that there there were different types of depression where it could be like situational. I didn't realize that it could be genetic. There were so many things I just didn't know. I didn't have the knowledge and I just thought it was sadness, not realizing that sadness, you know, when the situation gets better, it most likely kind of fades away. But when that thing is lingering and it's interrupting, you know, disrupting your day, you're not getting things done, you're being isolated, you're not eating, you're not sleeping, then I didn't realize, okay, that's actually a problem. But there was an inkling that I knew that something was wrong because I remember Googling something about depression and I was like, oh, I think this sounds like me. Nah, this ain't me. You know, Mm -hmm. so that was part of the reason why I didn't because of the lack of education and also because my external factors, I feel like, weren't big enough for me to be depressed. And Mm. the other part of that was I just was like, I just got out of grad school. Like, I mean, yeah, a lot of people may be struggling, can't find jobs and struggling to pay their bills. And I think since I also came from that, like with my, watching my mom struggle to pay bills or occasionally like the gas or the lights getting cut off, I was mm-hmm. like, I didn't go to college to repeat what I just left. So I think that also added to it. And I think that's probably why. So lack of education and I think shame is what leads to not really saying too much to anyone. That makes sense. So considering all things, what advice would you give to someone now who is struggling with mental health? That there is help. Even if you say like, oh, I don't have insurance. A lot of states have certain resources for mental and behavioral health that you can take advantage of. It just so happens for me, I was blessed to be able to, at the time when I had this incident, I was still on my mom's insurance because mm. I, didn't, I didn't age out. But then there was a point when I did age out and I was looking for insurance, so I had a lapse. And with my income, I found out that there were refunds for low income. So don't think that money has to be an issue. You can get the help that you need. That would be the one thing. And if you don't have, you feel like, oh, I don't really, I was actually forced to get help. And my prayer would be for the person listening that they wouldn't have to actually be forced to get help. Even if they don't know what to do, reaching out to someone who could be of a resource. And if they don't actually have the resources, there are, you know, of course, therapyforblackgirls.com. There's also now therapyforblackmen.org. You know, there's psychology today. So you can go and actually go to those websites and put where you are geographically and it'll populate for you to find a therapist. I would also let them know that therapy does not work. It doesn't happen overnight. So Mm -hmm. I didn't get help until about, what, 13 or 14 years after my first suicidal thought. I wasn't getting help, so it was an accumulation of things that happened 
over time. And so I've been working now with my therapist for almost three years. And I'm just starting to reap the benefits and see the results of that because it was years of things that I had to unpack. And like I said, yes, I was talking about it, but I wasn't getting, I didn't have the tools or the, the coping strategies, the action or healthy ones rather, to help me navigate through life and look at mm. uh, differently. And so I would say, you know, be kind and be patient to yourself and that there are resources available. And I will also even, you know, make put myself out there as a resource to, if someone needs help finding a particular resource, if I have information, be sure to always share that. And then I think one of the biggest things, if they are a person of faith, if they are a Christian, that your mental illness, even if you have a diagnosis, or even if you don't have a diagnosis and you're just struggling emotionally and mentally, like, it's not because you have a lack of faith in God. It's not... I had to tell myself that my God, he worked through my therapist. He worked through my psychiatrist. He worked through the doctors at the partial hospitalization program. He worked through those people. I, I needed that team of people, you know? If it wasn't mm-hmm. for me, and not every person makes it on the other side of surviving suicide. You know, there are mm-hmm. people who actually don't make it. And so there is help. I didn't think that there was, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. I honestly did not. I was convinced that I would not be here. So the fact that I am here two and a half years later or three years later is, is still blowing my mind. Like, I just, I just, I can't believe it. I, I'm, I'm in awe. And sometimes I just get really emotional because I thought I wouldn't be here to now I'm at a point of being really hopeful and optimistic. And mm. yeah, so I think that's, that's what I would tell them. Nice. Cause you're supposed to be here because you are supposed to be here. That's exactly why. And there are people who need you. So definitely want you to keep pressing forward in everything that it is you're doing as we're bringing this you know interview to a close i'd be interested in knowing and i'm pretty sure listeners will be um where can we find you in the the internet space yeah so you can find me on www.fireflyunite.com so you can find me there which has all the information about myself as well as the podcast which i didn't even really talk about but the podcast is more of peer-based support it was, it was things that I desired when I was in my darkest place. I was really looking for not just the perspective of a mental health professional, because those podcasts are out there. But I was like, what about the people who are being treated? Where's my community? I wanted my tribe of people, whether it was by, they had bipolar disorder or was suffering schizophrenia. I wanted those tribes of people. And I found that I felt most comfortable, ironically, when I was in the hospital, because I felt like those people got it. So the podcast, they can find me on there, Fireflies Unite with Kia. And wherever you listen to your podcast, feel free to check that out. You can find me on there. And all on social media, I am at Fireflies Pod. And Pod is short for podcast, so P-O-D. And those are all the places that you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so very much, Aki, for spending time with us on today and for sharing your journey, for sharing your wisdom, um, for definitely encouraging us to continue to take care of ourselves emotionally, um, you know, mentally, being able to find the help that we need. Again, I wish you well and all that's ahead. And you can always depend on the first gen fam to look out for you. Yes, I'm so excited to be a part of the family now. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. All right. Well, take care of yourself.